All right, uh, here we go. Uh, so uh, my name is Bill Feinberg. Uh, I'm an axe thrower originally from Cleveland. I uh, started throwing in Austin, Texas. I uh, currently live in Oklahoma City, and I'm here with Jesse from Throw or Throw V or Throv or what's the, what am I missing? Throve. Throve. I miss Throve. So, uh, but yeah, uh, this, this is a, an axe throwing podcast. This is, I, like, there's a lot of people in the axe throwing community that I think they have cool stories, and I just want to get to know them more and I give them a chance to kind of tell people stories. So, uh, with that, uh, Jesse, just want to kind of tell us about you. Give us kind of your intro. Like how'd you get started in, like with ax throwing and just, I guess, sports in general. Uh, sports. Uh, I, I worked as soon as I could. Um, I did run track long distance. Um, but I quit that as soon as I could get a paper out. And then, um, I grew up with axe throwing. My parents throw a knife and tomahawk at living history events. And, uh, and then, uh, towards the end of my father's life, I just went back to it. So for, as a young adult traveling, um, active duty coast guard living in Philadelphia, uh, before 2016, but you know, I, I drift, you know, that, that was part of my childhood. That was part of growing up. But then towards the end of my father's life, I just revisited, uh, to stay connected with him, uh, axe throwing, and went to the same living history events, and some of the same people were there, and just like the community, you know, that we all enjoy, you know, in axe throwing at tournaments and things, and and your leagues, your venues, um, the living history events um, called rendezvous, they have that same kind of atmosphere. What what is a living? I've never heard of a living history event. So living history event is just kind of like. Um, Unlike a weekend at the Ren Fair or something, like you're replicating a time, an actual time in history using equipment that would have been used, whether it's your tent, your your cooking utensils. Um, at a rendezvous, there's shooting sports. There's the uh, there's shooting sports and there's um, knife and t- uh, tomahawk competitions, cooking competitions. There's just all different things, and they're all going back to that time in history. So. The idea that you're living in that time period when you enter that that event. So is it almost like a, like a cross between? So like you know, it's it's more intense or more like kind of I guess like not strict, but uh, than like a Ren fair, but it almost sounds like a not like a Civil War reenactment, but kind of like 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 a time like a time period kind of like is it kind of like in between those or ish? Yeah. So like the reenactments and things like that, you know, they're very focused on maybe reenacting a very specific battle or event, you know, to the T, like, like scripted and everything where, um, or, or they might do a kind of like an ad hoc version of what you might expect in a like battlefield or something like that, where, and that's typically what reenactments, you know, imply where you go to a living history event. And as an attendee, it is strict. Like you have to wear like clothing from the period, you can get told, you know, that, hey, you got to get that changed. If you are seen with, you know, like a flashlight in your camping area and you're set up, you get told to turn it off. Um, but visitors come in and they're, they're different from attendees and they can come in and they can walk through in their street clothes and just get a glimpse of history. And the, uh, the period that rendezvous kind of focus on is like uh, 1820s uh, fur trapping period in American history. So um, probably, um, you know, if you, kind of take in time like Lewis and Clark uh, post their expedition west, you know, just opened up, 
you know, the wilderness to all types of people looking to, um, you know, take those resources, harvest them. And, and you know, American history, uh, surprisingly, there's, there's whale oil and, and beaver furs. So <laughs> those are two things, two commodities that we exported to Europe. Um, and uh, on the whale oil, we lit, you know, Paris was the first lit city in the world. And that was done through whale oil. And then on the, uh, the fashion side is where beaver felt, uh, beaver felt hats like top hats and things like that of that time period. So we almost, uh, you know, destroyed entire species <laughs> and, and, you know, an indus you know, industry, you know, f fueled our economy, like, like off of those two animals. I did not know. Did yeah, it's you, did pretty like, crazy. Is this like, did you have like history homework as part of the living events or is this stuff you kind of came to learn? No, also, it's, also, were there like competition, like axe competitions as part of that or no, it's like kind of two different topics? Yeah, there definitely are um, competitions, axe throwing and knife throwing, the traditional format throwing on playing cards, which, which would have been taking place in, you know, the 1820s. And then just as far as history goes, I mean, I've lived a pretty, um, I don't know, different life. And, you know, I lived on boats for three years and had always been interested in being a sailor. So the whaling industry is a big component of what you'll find when you're, you know, pursuing that interest as a, a young person and an adult, um, heart of the sea. Uh, you know, that's the actual account of like where uh, Moby Dick, you know, spawns from. Okay. But, but that story and, and other stories like that in the whaling industry are... Um, you know, they're, they're things that I would read as a kid. Okay. Now, did, uh, when you were on a boat, I guess, were you stationed in like the same place or you kind of stationed like kind of in different places? Did you get to do any throwing on the boat or is that not really an option? <laughs> no, it wasn't. So, so I did, uh, you know, step away from, you know, going out into the, the world. You know, I, I left a lot of things behind. I was uh, active duty Coast Guard. So my first two years was, uh, Kodiak, Alaska with a, an ops area down the um, Aleutian uh, Peninsula. So, so you have the peninsula going down to Dutch Harbor. So if you watched like Deadliest Catch, um, you know, Dutch Harbor is a pretty common, like people recognize that place. At that time, uh, Deadliest Catch wasn't being, you know, that wasn't even a thing. Um, this would have been, you know, uh, 94, 95. And, um, but Dutch Harbor was a really rough place. Um, the Elbow Room was the considered to be the roughest bar in the world but but we would work all the way down to that and then um the gulf of alaska and then my second unit um underway unit meaning that i was on a boat a cutter as the coast guard calls it was in uh at the academy in uh, connecticut new london and that was the uh, coast guard cutter eagle and you can look that up it's a it's a tall ship it's a bark meaning that it has two full square masts and then a mizzen. Um, so, and that's a, that's a very historical uh, vessel. It's a war prize from World War II. It was one of seven of the, um, the German Navy's floating academy. And to this day, it, it uh, functions as a f uh, training vessel for the cadets of the academy. So I, I worked um, in the rigging. And training cadets on like watch and lookout, um, but deckhand um, sailing, traditional sailors, uh, just all the things that go in hand with you know working, climbing the ratlins and uh, and working out on the the uh, mass. 
Okay, cool. I uh, I did not I, like. I know I like heard you mention like earlier today something about like being in Alaska, but I didn't realize like so you were there for a little while. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, it sounds like you are used to the cold. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind the cold at all. I. It's not common. I mean, it definitely happens. Uh, people do volunteer to go to Alaska. They ask to go to Alaska. And what's called a dream sheet, which is a list of eight, seven places you want to go and one place you don't want to go. Um, every All seven was units in Alaska. And then the eighth, that a place I didn't want to go was anywhere but, you know, anywhere that's not Alaska, meaning I don't want to go to a place that's not Alaska. So when they looked at my uh, in boot camp, they just laughed and said, you're going to Alaska. So I was like, cool. But, um, but yeah. Would you have been upset if they're like, there's no spots in Alaska. We're sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would have been disappointed because I mean, part of the plan was to get on that tall ship again. Like I read books, you know, about, um, like the Napoleonic Wars, Horatio Hornblower's book series. You can check that out, but that's what I grew up reading. And, um, so I wanted to be, you know, a pirate. I wanted to be on a tall ship. And I knew that if I went to Alaska, one, I wanted to go. And then second, being that um, out of Alaska in the Coast Guard, you get your first pick off your dream sheet. So my dream sheet, the next one submitted was Coast Guard Cutter Eagle, which is what I got. Um, just as they said, you know, you'll get the first pick after you do two years in Alaska. And um, I did my two years and got to the Eagle. And from there, I went um, you know, across the Atlantic all the way into uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, and all points in between. Oh wow! Yeah. So, um, so like you, so like you've been to Russia. Mm-hmm. Was uh, like, did you just like kind of make a stop there? Did you get to like, <laughs> did you get like, what's like leave? Did you get to go exploring, or you just like you're like, all right, cool, there's a place, all right, back on the boat. Yeah, I mean, I got to to step off, you know, on on Liberty leave, and uh, so I had Liberty in in Saint Petersburg, Russia. It's a little different as a, you know, and some people can argue, but as a foreign military. You know, member of the Coast Guard, I had to wear my uniform um, on Russian soil. So, yeah, and um, and that was different from other other countries that we had stopped at. But um, Russia is a, I mean, at that time that would have been '96. Uh, very different, you know, place from growing up in the '80s and seeing it unfold in the fall of the the Berlin Wall. But but there was definitely, you know, is a. Uh, it was an interesting experience as far as, you know, seeing a world power and just seeing like the ideologies and how that all played out for them and understanding, you know, growing, you know, up with, uh, in this country with, you know, you know, what we, you know, label as freedoms and realizing, you know, that for example, you could not drink the water or bathe in it in Russia because of the amount of industrial pollution. Couldn't bathe in it? Couldn't bathe in it without boiling it. You yeah. would get sick. I've uh, been camping place where they didn't have potable water and somebody in like the camp brushed their teeth with it and then they're like throwing up on the side of the highway like two hours later. But I couldn't imagine like not being able to bathe in it. Yeah, you could not bathe in it. You, you had to boil the water. And uh, yeah, it's just... And, and also um, the, one of the other things about St. Petersburg that was really interesting was um, every midnight, so St. Petersburg has an island and there's these drawbridges around it. And so what they do is they just sit out and drink vodka until the bridge is raised. And that's their, that's their prim- at least in 1996, I don't know if it's different, but you know that was their primary form of entertainment every night. Like instead of going out to a restaurant, a club or whatever, 
everybody's just in this uh, street that's closed off to traffic. Um, not that there was a lot of uh, vehicle traffic that I remember, but the um, but yeah, I was just um, drinking um, alcohol, uh, bottles of vodka, beers, different things, and um, until those bridges raised, everybody would cheer and then go home, and that was every night. That uh, that sounds like the strangest drinking game I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. So so tell me how you go from kind of being in Coast Guard and you know visiting visiting Russia, St. Petersburg, and then so now. You currently live in a van and you travel around and you photograph axe throwing events and other things. But so, uh, so kind of fill in those gaps between like Coast Guard. So you got, you know, you got your first pick after your Alaska uh, to like, I guess, like how much time are we talking between like getting out of the Coast Guard till now? So I, I got out of the Coast Guard in uh, 99 and then I went to art school, um, dropped out of art school in my uh, second half of my junior year. I went for a painting and a sculpture. And then um, just kind of bounced around in Philadelphia doing just different jobs, um, which is where I went to school. I went to Tyler School of Art, but, um, which was also my last two years active duty in the Coast Guard was uh, River Patrol in the Delaware. But, the, um, but yeah, and from there I, I went on to a, a job in corporate America for like 13 years. And, and I would, towards, like I said, towards the end of my father's life, which is going back like 15 years now, um, I went back to the living history events that we grew up going to and just kind of reinserted myself in with that community and uh, throwing knife and hawk and putting together competitions, um, doing demonstrations and teaching the public at like sportsman shows. And then, and I've been doing that, I was doing that for a bit, like uh, 07 ballpark um, up to 2016. And 2016, I got an invite from, um, Lily to the Urban Axe's first uh, location soft opening uh, right there in Kensington, Philadelphia. And that's the first time I saw the indoor format, um, meaning, you know, throwing on vertical grain with hatchets that you buy at like a hardware store. And, and I was really excited because I would just do this in the backyard and then go to, you know, like get invited to like a sportsman show or something like that on occasion. But, but most of it was just me by myself trying to convince friends to come over and throw and uh and try it out and I had one friend try it out of everybody that I would invite he absolutely loved it thought it was great um but but yeah it was uh all of a sudden there's I was like this is cool and my friends like it's so weird that's what you do and uh and the moment that I could I took a position you know as an instructor at a venue that um in Lancaster which is about you know 40 minutes to an hour depending on traffic from where I was and I would just, you know, drive and do like two shifts a week until I got more shifts and, um, you know, instructing the public and, and doing what I do. And the, uh, and through that, I started to go to tournaments and, you know, work within like some of the Philadelphia venues, um, work with events between my employer who also made mead and those, um, and those venues. And then I remember, um, going down to uh, Choppers for the first time and meeting Keith. And I just told him, I said, I want to be in a position where I'm, I'm documenting this sport. Um, and I didn't really have a full vision of what that would be. But kind of fast forward to the next couple of years, um, June 27th, I resigned from my position at that meadery and went home and just started building Throw, which is... Um, 
you know how I pronounce it. You're free to pronounce it any way you want, but the uh, but yeah, I, I went home from uh, you know it was my first shift after lockdown, and just everything had changed. And I just looked at it as um, I mean I've I've always had a pretty decent understanding of my mortality, but you know just looking at uh, some people have midlife crises, they do different things. I wouldn't call this a midlife crisis, but it was something that I said I wanted to do years back, and I just said you know what. I can afford to finance myself if, you know, regardless of how it plays out and just live my life as I choose and not, you know, instead of investing so heavy on other people's dreams, just invest, take that same amount of, of energy and thought and put it towards my own dream. And um, my first uh, tournament was uh, Angry Jack's Bulls for Boobies in November of 2020. And um, I was running a new rig. Um, the, and I know you have this question down the line, but it's a Sony A9, um, alpha, you know, series, uh, Sony mirrorless cameras. It's a full frame camera with a, I mean, my primary workhorse is a, um, a 24 to, or a 70 to 200, um, millimeter Grandmaster, which is an iconic lens in sports photography and, and just photography in general. But, um, but yeah, it's someone that had asked me, you know, Cash had asked me once, you know, if you could, if you could run your dream camera, you know, lens combo and everything, like, what would it be? I was like, I am, that's what I'm running. That's awesome. Yeah. And, um, so, so I went with, uh, I, I used to shoot Nikon. I, I stopped, transitioned to Sony mirrorless and, um, shot my first tournament and really just kind of looked at it. A lot of the images weren't um, weren't usable just because of the light conditions at that location, which I didn't fully understand it at the time. But but I've come to understand that that for lighting that is the most challenging venue that I shoot at because I have gone back there, even with my own lights, and I just cannot flush out the banding that occurs, uh, the frequencies of the lights. That was your first one. So and you started was, with the hardest one. <laughs> yeah, I started with the hardest one, not realizing I was like. I went, I went back and looking at the images, I'm just like, well, I'm awful. This is, this is going to be terrible. Um, and it's a good thing really, because I basically, you know, through the artistic process, you know, uh, painting, I would paint over paintings. If I didn't like it, no matter how much time I put into it, I would just start over and just, um, and I think you kind of said, you know, like that perfectionist and, uh, in you and, and if, you know, and I, I did that going into Worlds. I did it mentally. And going into Worlds, um, what I shot at Worlds was very different from, I mean, there's, there's no visual curve uh, in, in the growth between that first tournament shooting under throw and Worlds. It's just, it may as well be two different photographers. Um, and that's mostly because when I, I came back from that tournament, looking at the images, I said, I don't like any of this. And I'm going to do it differently. And, and that's when I just kind of said everything I knew about photography, I just kind of threw it to the side and said, screw that. And, um, and I went to worlds with a different, uh, different mentality. I just prepared to slay it. And I wasn't really sure. I, I wasn't, you know, the photography was like, uh, the last minute kind of add on to my business model that I built, um, in June. And, uh, and I wasn't even, you know, I had that, the van that I travel in my, my GMC, I had that van. Um, 
already I, I like to go kayaking and I would store my kayak just right inside it. And then I couldn't, didn't have to worry about it being stolen. Um, and I could go whenever I wanted to. Cause, cause prior to photographing axe throwing, I would go out, um, I was very isolated in a lot of my habits and things, but I would go out and I would, uh, take my cameras with and just photograph, uh, turtles, mostly primarily turtles. And you got a pretty um, big collection of turtle photographs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somehow there's like almost 8,000 people following my turtle photography. Like, even though it's not active really anymore, but, but yeah. And, um, so it's like, uh, the, the van, you know, I looked at going down to worlds. I, I had asked Mario if I could get press credentials. He said, absolutely love to have you. And, um, and I rigged my van to stay in it that weekend, which, uh, the, the bed I sleep in now is a military cot. And that was my bed that I slept in, in my, my apartment. So, so all I did was I moved my bed into it and, um, loaded up. I think one toolbox full of clothing and my gear and, uh, and headed to Atlanta and just stayed in my, my van the entire, the entire weekend. And then, um, when I looked at, you know, post, uh, 2020 worlds, what opportunities existed, you know, I just decided I'm just gonna, um, rig my van with a cargo net. I still have that same rack and mattress combination and um, a couple more toolboxes of clothing and other things. But, um, but yeah, I just rigged it out, and it's, it's a lot like the cutters that I lived on in the Coast Guard. My, my van build is not the studio apartments that you see. It's, it's much more primitive. and um, It's not going to be popular on Instagram? <laughs> no. I mean, it might be popular to some people that look at van life as this, you know, Forty to sixty thousand dollar out the gate investment. It might be popular to them because when they look at it, they're like, "I could do this." And I mean, obviously, it's not how I live is not for everyone, um, even in van life. But um, but if you know, I, I tell people this. You know, if if it's what you want, you're gonna move mountains to to do it. And it's what I wanted to do. I had um, I'd done a lot of different things in my life. I've lived in a lot of different places. And, uh, and I didn't really find fulfillment and, and I always would reference like, uh, my two years in Alaska is the best two years of my life and going into, um, I think it was about, you know, sometime around, uh, April or May of 2021, I was able to say, um, truthfully that the best years of my life were ahead of me because of the decisions I made. And, um, you know, and those decisions go all the way to, you know, living in my van, um, all my energy focused on, on my dreams. And then also just my approach to photography, which is different and from a lot of photographers, but my approach to photography and also, um, the, the opportunities that I created for myself, uh, and taking, not full advantage of them, but, but taking them under kind of the, the, the light of like, um, it's a privilege, you know, like I'm living a lifestyle that, um, some people look at and I, and I, so I see a social work and I have for since 2014. Um, uh, and one of the things, you know, I, I suspected when I told her, Hey, I'm going to 
pack my apartment into a storage unit and um, live in a van and travel the country and photograph axe throwing tournaments, I expected her to tell me that this is a terrible idea. She has told me that in the past. <laughs> and granted, those were bad ideas. In the moment, they seemed like a good, solid decision. But I expected her to tell me that. And instead, what she had told me was um, that the world needs people like me. And that kind of surprised me because I would not have, um, you know, it surprised me. I thought, well, okay, uh, I, I didn't really fully understand or even um, appreciate what she was saying. But, you know, going in through the, the 2021 and just the people that I've met, the friends that I've made, a lot of them have expressed to me, um, you know, kind of in that line of just the the life that I'm living, that they, they, for them to be able to see, you know, my travels and to experience and, and just see what I'm doing with my day to day. And, and also how I, I, um, photograph, uh, ax throwing, like they're just able to live vicariously through, you know, what I'm doing and that that gives them some relief, you know, in their own life. Like, uh, it's something that they look forward to seeing, you know, the pictures and just seeing what I'm up to. So she wasn't wrong in that sense. Um, and, it, and it, again, it's, it's just something that, you know, I, I look at it, it's, it's a privilege to be able to work within the community and have the, the friendships that I have and, and people willing, you know, to support me. And that support can be anything from, you know, a shower to an extension cord. Like I really don't, um, like financially, I, for the most part, you know, through sales of t-shirts, like that's the primary way that I make money. Um, and then just the rest is just self-financing. And, um, but the, what I get in return is I'm living, um, I'm living a life that I would have never thought possible. And, and not even that I dreamed of it. Like I just thought, you know, when going into out of 2020 going into 2021 i just expected that i would be begging to get into doors like to for people to to believe that the only thing i want to do is take pictures and um you know and and that they can have those pictures and i just want to pursue you know the art that um that i come to realize that i was i was born to make and and art has always been a huge part of my life ever since you know um, my first day of art class, my uh, teacher, Miss Norton, you know, during open house, she just said, you know, you have an artist, you know, and that's kindergarten. Um, and, uh, and I worked, you know, like through high school and everything, you know, I like, always taking the bulk of my courses, art courses, no matter the media or the, you know, I was just interested in creating things and, and figuring out, you know, what, what I enjoyed working with. and. Um, with photography, I always, I mean, my first camera I had at 13 and it was just a wind up, you know, 35 millimeter, uh, point and shoot, you know, just a step above disposable and, uh, and out of boot camp, you know, the, the first major investment I had was, um, uh, Canon rebel 35 millimeter, um, you know, film camera, which traveled, you know, everywhere I went and, and was, um, you know, was with me for, probably about 10 years until uh, I finally said, okay, I'm not buying film for this. I'm not using this. I transitioned to digital. And, um, 
but yeah, it's like uh, the the life that I live today and just the opportunity to be a part of everybody's weekend and to document the sport, like I had said, you know, expressed to uh, Keith Gibbons going back. Um, yeah, it's just been a huge privilege. Well, it's cool that you, like I mentioned, you know, people living vicariously through your photos. Like I'm one of those people, right? Like, you know, cause obviously like I want to go to every tournament I could possibly go to and like, you know, like, oh, there's a marathon league. Like, oh, I want to go to that. Oh, I, I can't. I have to be a grown-up this weekend. Um, but it's cool when, like, you know, like, oh, oh, you, Jesse went to the tournament down in Texas. Like, oh, I see pictures of my friends from Texas and Jesse. And it's like, it's like I didn't get to go, but I'm like, I felt like I was still kind of there. Uh, and so, I, like, so thank you for that. Like, it's, it's, it's really cool, like, it, like, as, like, a fan of your work. Um, now, uh, in terms of, like, I guess, like, do you – do you still get to throw much or at this point, like, like, is that obviously like you, you're too mobile to like participate in like leagues? Um, or do you just kind of like throw with friends, like depending on like where you're at at the moment? I, I always, uh, it's always throw with, not against. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's always been my thing. Like, but, um, but yeah, like as far as competition goes, um, you know, there was, I, I threw in, uh, IATF for, um, it was the only venues available in the area, but um, that I was at. But but I threw ITF for a good number of years. But but I have an anxiety disorder. I also have six concussions, and um, and the amount of energy, the amount of the amount of, the, the amount of time, and and the tools that I have to invest to kind of mitigate and balance out that anxiety that competition creates, you know, for me, um, that you know, kind of it changes it and. And so while I, I did well, you know, competing in ITF and things, and, and there are moments, but it's, it's really just throwing with people that I enjoy. And I, I do get those opportunities. And, um, and, and also, like, throw by myself. Um, it's, it's my form of meditation. Like, I don't, it's very hard to, I don't know if anybody is successful in meditating. I mean, I assume there's got to be somebody out there that's done it well. But the idea of clearing your head and, and just breaking, you know, isolating yourself to such a, a point where you don't have thoughts going on, like, I don't know what that's like, but the closest I've gotten is just throwing. And, um, you know, at one point in my life, I had a, a, I rented a room from a friend and she allowed me to build a range in her garage, her detached garage, which is important. <laughs> like You throwing a big action there or just hatchet? <laughs> just hatchet but, um, and knife. But but it's important that it was detached because you know I have chronic insomnia. If I couldn't sleep, you know I would get up and throw for hours on end, and and some on a bad day that'd be like eleven hours. And um, so eleven hours nonstop. I mean I yeah I mean I'd get something to drink, I'd grab a snack, or but but yeah just pretty much throw for eleven hours just to clear my head, and um, and I still get to. I get to throw. Um, venues are, are always very gracious, you know, to allow me uh, space to work and and throw. And um, and as far as competitions, sometimes I get bamboozled into competitions where where I didn't really have an option because they signed me up already or something, where I just said, okay, yeah, this sounds fun. Like a, a random duels is just a great way to um, throw with somebody that you might not, you know, ever throw with, but also just like, it takes away a lot of that stress. Cause what's your expectations? And, um, 
but yeah, I got my first random duels, and I think maybe even my only random duels was with uh, Jenna Lucas, and I had such a great time. And and it really like for I mean we were good friends to begin with, but it's just another experience with a person. And if that's if if you're in a situation, I strongly encourage you. You see that random duels, like sign up for it because you don't know who you're gonna get. And what you, but what you absolutely walk away with is an appreciation of that person like, like you didn't have previously, you know? And if that's your first experience with that person, that's, there's no better way that's awesome. to get to know somebody. Do you, uh, and so like, do you, like, obviously like living in a van, because I, I feel like all the axe throwers that I know like have massive collections, like <laughs> I've lost track of how many axes I have at this point. I'm guessing I'm well over 10 and that's probably a small number for a lot of people. Um, but so like, do you, uh, like, do you have to like, do you kind of travel with like a full collection or you just kind of have like some go-tos for the road or do you just, just kind of throw whatever is like the people that you're kind of visiting have? So so I have, um, I throw, you know, I have my primary hatchet. Um, it's a gen one, um, butcher. And then I have, uh, ax gang, which I is available for throwing duels. And then I have my my big axe, which is an old world um, Swedish drop forge uh, Boy Scout. And uh, but then my my actual collection sits um, back at my mother's house, and uh, you know that includes like a Black Raven, um, a uh, Kelly registered uh, Plum Scout, all original, but um, Plum Super Scout, all original, and just. A bunch of other odds and ends um, that were always on my like wish list, you know. And I, I went through that wish list and and acquired either through scouring like the antique shops in uh, rural Pennsylvania, like Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, or it's be a gold mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big axe that I have is I found that in an antique shop for eight bucks. I mean, I have a um, plum um, cedar axe that I picked up for, um, I think it was under 15, but you know, ballpark $15. And at that time, you know, going back a couple of years, like you couldn't find that for, you know, under 210 bucks. And it just kind of floored me that to hear this and it was on my list. Um, uh, if you ever want to look up an interesting history on an ax, the Cedar ax is an amazing one it comes out of Texas and, um, and it has just a great story. But it's in in the sense of like what the cedar axe and its profile, its creation, and how that creation came about, um, and the impact that it had on the plum brand. Like you can see the you can see the 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 relationship immediately. Like the um, you know it's it's and it's it's just a cool story. Like it's a, a lot of ha- um, just happened by um, circumstances. Now, uh, in your in your collection, do you have any axes that like you were like super stoked? You're like, man, I can't wait to get this axe, and you get it, and like it just didn't, like you weren't happy with the way it threw, or vice versa. Ones where you're like, all right, this is just like a cheap off the shelf axe, and you're like, I don't know, I just really like the way this Ace Hardware axe throws. <laughs> um, let's see, disappointing axes. I'd have to. I mean, I think there's ones where I'm definitely like, this is cool, like it, it looks amazing, um, and and not all my my axes that I was excited about getting aren't, aren't for the sense of throwing. Like I have a chopper, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's got the mechanical uh, cantilevers on it, a USA one. Um, but it's made for splitting, 
Okay. And um, and it's just a heavy piece of hardware. I, I assume somebody probably tried throwing one, but you know, send it. But um, but no, this uh, the Kelly Register. Um, that was a that's a really cool one. Um, not a thrower. I mean, I'm sure you could turn it into a thrower if you were if you're interested in that. But but it's a piece of history, and and it basically has a hand engraved serial number which ties back to the register of the actual person that first purchased it. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's Kelly registers are pretty cool. Like um, I, w- I would take a Kelly register over a Black Raven any day. Okay. Um, it's also a really awesome looking uh, fell axe. But the, um, and, and Black Ravens are awesome um, as a piece of history. And they also are awesome as an investment, you know. And, uh, but as far as throwing that goes, I don't throw that. I don't even have it hung. Um, probably the most disappointing was uh, like a Swiss um, military surplus axe, which you know looked really cool with its profile and everything. But as far as a tempered steel went, it 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 it's not and it's a thrower. It's not a great thrower, but um, but yeah, as far as it's it's just quality of a hatchet. It was surprising. I mean, not surprising because it was military issue, but it was just surprisingly disappointing because I really liked the look of it. And, um, and you can come across that one. It has a hole drilled through the, the, the cheeks, um, for the, uh, the sheath to be like uh, tied to it. But, but yeah, probably the, one of the, my big ax finding that, that was one of the awesome finds is in a bucket. And I specifically went out that day hoping to find old Swedish steel, old world steel uh, boy scout and i did and so i was just kind of like cool universe aligned and um and i paid eight dollars for it (laughs) yeah i feel like with as much driving as you do like if you just stopped at like all the middle of nowhere antique shops like that could fund (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know if it could fund but you know because because that swap you know like 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 there's definitely would be opportunities to maybe get something and, and flip it, you know, make, make some money. But, um, so I'm diabetic. So there's things when I go in the grocery store, I'm just not going to buy because I know it's a mistake going into an antique shop, like out in a place and I see them and I'm like, Oh man, this place. And it, and it's not just axes that I would like look at and get excited about. Like, um, but yeah, I, I, my van would be so heavy. I wouldn't be able to move <laughs> like, like I'd have to, that would come to a quick halt. So it's kind of in the same sense of discipline of just like, yeah, I know, I know what I shouldn't do and I should not do that. That would be a poor life choice. You have to teach me how to do that. Cause I'm like, <laughs> oh, uh, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'll just deal with the consequences. Um, cool. So, uh, I know we've been going for, I don't know almost 40 minutes. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I appreciate you spending this time. Um, so you kind of talked about van life, talked about some lenses. Um, I guess like, so with all the driving that you do, uh, like what do you listen to? Like when you're on the road, like, like, like when you got to burn up these miles, right? Uh, like, you know, are you like a podcast? Are you an audio book music? Just note and silence. Like, um, music is definitely like a big one. Um, so I have a, I have a, a Spotify station, THROVV, which I made available just because a lot of people ask me, like, what do you listen to? And some of them, uh, some individuals had joked that I listen to like medical journals or documentaries. And sometimes I'll, I'll make that joke. But, um, but usually it's that, that music. 
Um, but I also listen to audiobooks. Um, my brother, he always read like uh, Stephen King. Um, Wheel of Time was like a big one for him growing up, which you can now watch on Amazon. So, and, and I used to spend a lot of time coding. And when I was coding, I often listened to books over music. But, um, but yeah, so I'll listen to, like I have an a audiobook library and I'll just put stuff in that I've heard before. And it's just really background noise. When you say um, coding, like software coding? Yeah, like writing, writing um, you know, what people like to call algorithms, but, but writing arguments. Okay. Yeah, complex arguments. And, um, but yeah, I used to spend a lot of time doing that for, to get, and getting paid. But the, um, but yeah, so it's like uh, you could check out Spotify, THROVV is what I named it. And I, I put that together with um, stuff that's from my Pandora station, which is a station that I've had for, you know, probably going on like uh, six or seven years. And um, it's a lot. I mean, it's everything from Johnny Cash, to like Amy Winehouse, Beck, Rage Against the Machine. And that's what I'm typically listening to when I'm shooting, you know, and driving. Okay, I didn't realize that you uh, that you actually listen to music while you're shooting. Yeah, yep. Cool. Um, all right, I guess uh, with that, like, is uh, it's like, what do you kind of want to promote, or what do you want to plug, or like, what you know, like, who do you want to give a shout out to? I know. Um, my next, so I don't. A lot of us, you know, the twenty twenty one was like the wild west of tournaments. Um, it was just an explosion, and and there was, I mean, I had a good framework of a schedule. Um, well before January, you know, coming out of December, um, I sat down and started building that uh, for 2021. This year's a little different, so it's really hard to say, um, you know, what the future holds on the, the tournament schedule. But I do know that I'll be in uh, Cascadia, Axe, up in Oregon here shortly. Um, that's the weekend of the 22nd of January. And then Axes and O's out in um, Sterling, Virginia. Um, I believe that's where it's at. But uh, they have a major. And that's kind of like, these are tournaments that were planned, you know, towards the end of uh, 2021. And they just kind of worked out to get them plugged in while the rest of the, the schedule's being built out right now as we speak by the WATL. And, um, and just on that note, like I, I asked... I asked the WATL not to share things with me um, unless it's absolutely necessary. So I'm not going to be an inside like, <laughs> insider of like tournaments to expect or plan for. Um, I'm going to be finding out no different than you all are. And, um, and that's not a deterrent. Um, I'm okay with kind of flying by my seat this year and knowing that, um, I mean, last year was amazing, but it's just, I also know that it's not going to be the, the circuit that it was last year, which was, I mean, if I wanted to shoot every weekend last year, I nearly could. And, um, in some cases I definitely shot, you know, there's five weeks that with well, five weekends that month, I shot four of the five, but it's a lot of shooting. Yeah. So, so you're going to be going from Oregon to Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I didn't realize that uh, people were hitting you up to try and find out like the tournament schedule. Like, you know what's going on. Like, no, I, I don't know that they uh, they definitely didn't last. But I just wanted to put that out there just in case, because <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's definitely um, you know there are things that I do get a lot of information, and I tip you know I, I typically will respect you know the 
the privacy or the, you know, the, the sensitivity of information. But I just don't want to give people the impression that I'm a go-to source for inside. I, I prefer not to know things. <laughs> it gives me less to think about, um, less to worry about. And, uh, and I also like to be surprised, um, just like everybody else. So the, um, going into this year, I, I have no idea what to expect other than that. I'll have a little bit more time to um, pursue um, some of the projects that I want to work on from content um, that I had shot from 2021, like a, a year one publication, which will be a, a photo book, and um, you know, and just other projects or other opportunities to um, you know define my contribution in in other ways to the sport. Cool. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me. And uh, for this is the conclusion of the first episode of whatever this podcast will eventually be named. <laughs> Doesn't even have a name yet. That's how hot it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this just shows how much of a planner I am. So, uh, Jesse, thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, uh, thank you for having uh, me. Hopefully I get this out onto the internet soon. <laughs> hopefully before uh, you go to Oregon. So, cool. Adios.